When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. the familiar sound of a jingle that brings both feelings of hope and dread in equal measure to different sections of the British public. I'm Farah Jassat, host of the Intelligence Squared podcast, which this week asks, is Jeremy Corbyn fit to be Prime Minister? Following weeks, months, actually, it's been nearly three years of constant debate about the suitability of Corbyn as Labour Party leader, it's all coming to a head. Is he the man to lead the charge of change or a liability to Labour holding any electoral success? Daniel is the producer of this week's debate and joins me now. Daniel, when did you come up with the idea of having this debate? Well, I suppose the genesis for the debate was in the shock general election result in 2017, when Jeremy Corbyn dramatically slashed Theresa May's majority and increased his vote share by more than any other Labour leader since Clement Attlee in 1945. And since then, the question of whether he's suitable to be Prime Minister has really come into sharp focus. It's really heated up over the summer, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. I mean, the issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party really isn't going away, starting from his liking of a controversial Facebook post, which was perceived by many to be anti-Semitic. There were huge protests in the Jewish community against his leadership's handling of the issue. And since then, I mean, the issue is really, really heating up. He's such a polarising figure, isn't he? I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has some of the most passionate advocates and staunch opponents of any figure in British public life. You either love him or you hate him. There really is no other figure this side of the pond who divides public opinion more than Jeremy Corbyn. The only parallel I can really think of is Donald Trump in the United States. Well, that's probably a topic for a whole other debate. So, Daniel, as you know, at the end of our live debates, we ask the audience to vote on whether their perceptions have been swayed either way. How do you think the audience vote will go at the end of this debate? Well, the news cycle doesn't look good for Jeremy Corbyn at the moment. So I think his supporters on the panel could have a tough time. But we really do have some passionate advocates on both sides and our audience is quite open minded. So it really could go either way. Thanks, Daniel. Now let's go straight to the debate. Joining us on stage to argue that Corbyn is not fit to be Prime Minister is the novelist Howard Jacobson and Conservative MP Anna Subri. And defending Jeremy Corbyn is the journalist Ash Saka and Labour MP Chris Williamson. Let's now join Anthony Selden, our chair of the debate and biographer of the last four British Prime Ministers. Thank you very much, everybody, for coming tonight. We are going to be debating this. Jeremy Corbyn is unfit to be Prime Minister. And the first speaker for this motion is on my immediate right, Har Jacobson, novelist, journalist, best known perhaps, perhaps for the Finkler question, which won him the 2010 Man Booker Prize, a prominent critic 
of Jeremy Corbyn and in particular his handling of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Howard, would you like to be walking up uh, as we go? Every speaker has a maximum of 10 minutes. Howard, that is now 9.59. Mr Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, something tells me you're expecting to hear me call Jeremy Corbyn an anti-Semite. There's been a bit about this in the press, and I, well, you know. But I'm not going to call him anything. He says he isn't an anti-Semite. Hamas says he isn't an anti-Semite. The white supremacist David Duke says he isn't an anti-Semite. And that's good enough for me. You might think I'm being ironical. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I am incapable of irony. We all know what an anti-Semite looks like. He wears jackboots, a swastika armband, and he shouts, Judenraus. Jeremy Corbyn wears a British home store's vest under his shirt, and he's softly spoken. Anti-Semites accuse Jews of killing Jesus. Corbyn is an atheist and seems not to mind whether we did or we didn't. <laughs> whether that's because Jesus was Jewish and killing him meant one less Jew in the world <laughs> is not for me to say. And, and he doesn't deny the Holocaust. Mind you, he knows a man who does. In fact, he knows a surprising number of men who do. That he denies ever having been in their company until photographs turn up of him rubbing noses with them at the gravesides of mass murderers, offering to show them his belief systems if they'll show him theirs. Gosh, they're almost the same size. Should come as no surprise. You can't spend your whole life in the company of blood libelers and Holocaust deniers and expect to remember them all by name. If I may quote from Oscar Wilde's missing play, The Self-Importance of Being Jeremy, to associate with one anti-Semite you don't know to be anti-Semitic, Mr. Corbyn, may be regarded as a misfortune. To associate with anti-Semites on a regular basis looks like a predilection. But look, when I think of the scoundrels I've hung around with, I know how easy it is to get people wrong, even when they turn up to meet you wearing hoods and holding burning crosses. And Jeremy, is it okay if I call him Jeremy, has never actually been what you could call observant. Take that mural he championed, showing bankers playing Monopoly on the naked backs of the world's oppressed. You and I, ladies and gentlemen, would look at those greedy, grasping, hooked-nosed, syphilitic, Zionistic financiers and recognize them at once as straight out of the Julius Streicher I Spy Book of Jews. But so innocent of anti-Semitic caricature is Jeremy that he didn't see anything remotely offensive. I didn't look closely, he explained later. How many times does he have to say that, for God's sake? I might have been there but I don't think I was involved. I don't remember. I didn't look closely. If this reminds you of those who lived downwind of the chimneys of Bergen-Belsen, claiming never to have smelt anything out of the ordinary, I say you have suspicious natures. Corbyn is a busy man. Busy men must take emotional shortcuts. There's an image of a blood-sucking Jew. It's identical to the image of the blood-sucking Jew I already carry in my head. Snap! Could there, I wonder, be such a thing as an inadvertent anti-Semite? Jeremy claims to be a, peace a peacemaker. A peacemaker brings warring parties together. Why then do we only ever see him taking Palestinians to tea? Could it be that he just can't remember to ask the Israelis? Bugger, I've forgotten to invite the Jews again. 
Unless, perish the thought, it isn't peace he wants after all, but the destruction, but the triumph of those he calls comrades and the destruction of those he doesn't. According to his supporters, Jeremy Corbyn doesn't have a racist bone in his body. Just a question, but what is a racist bone and how do you know whether another person has one? There are 64 bones in the human arm alone. Can one be absolutely certain that Jeremy doesn't feel even the tiniest twinge of bone ache somewhere between the scapula and the humerus when he sees an alien figure, such as I, coming towards him on Islington Green, carrying the collected speeches of Benjamin Disraeli and humming My Yiddish Mama? And what are we to make, speaking of Corbyn's unconscious, of his inability ever to disavow anti-Semitism without reminding us of his lifelong opposition to all forms of racism? Which is like answering the question, are you a wife-beater, with the assurance that you always buy the big issue. Because because anti-Semitism, ladies and gentlemen, isn't quite a racism. It's closer to a superstition, embedded in theology, shrouded in medieval irrationality, updated to suit leftist economics, and exhumed whenever a single explanation for all the evils of the world is sought. To talk of anti-Semitism as a racism is a contradiction in terms for Jeremy Corbyn, since in his eyes, Jews are neither downtrodden nor exploited, but are, as usurers, colonialists and conspirators, the very source and fount of racism themselves. Once hold Jews to be racist and Zionism a racist endeavor, then no anti-Semite can ever be a racist himself, and any definition that says otherwise must be amended. That's the psychology, now the science. Corbyn's political life has been determined by Newton's first law of inertia, which states that an object will stay at rest forever as long as nothing pushes or pulls on it. In physics, that something that might push or pull it is another object in motion. In socialist politics, it is a view contradictory to your own. Corbyn averts his face whenever he hears the word Jew and rolls his eyes whenever he is asked a question because he fears the chaos, otherwise known as a change of mind, that might ensue from accepting there's another way of looking at the world. I will spend my remaining seconds, I don't mean in life, I mean of this speech, telling you why it matters to everyone, not just Jews, that a man so spiteful, sanctimonious and obdurate should never be allowed to do to the country what he's doing to the party. Those who revere Corbyn see it as a virtue that he has never changed his views. Mr Chairman, it is only a virtue to be faithful to one's views if those views are worth staying faithful to. To persist in a small erroneousness is the mark of a fool. To persist in a great erroneousness is the mark of a dangerous fool. The ideology in which Corbyn has been pickled for half a century was outworn before it even reached him. It oversaw the death of millions. That the ideologies he opposes have scarcely done any better is not an argument for his. You don't have to love the West to refuse the embraces of those whose sole ambition is to blow the West apart especially if you wish to call yourself a pacifist. This should have been a golden summer for Labour, the nightmare that is Brexit, the hell that is Jacob Rees-Mogg, the out-of-season pantomime that is Boris Johnson. From all these, Labour ought to have delivered us. But Corbyn did as much as anyone to make Brexit happen with his feeble non-support for remaining. Do you remember that question? How much do you favour staying? Uh, seven, seven and a half, seven... That was one to get us to the barricades, was it not, ladies and gentlemen? (laughs) The wrong man, ladies and gentlemen, the wrong man in the wrong time, espousing the wrong causes. I am nothing if not fair. People who are limited in everything but the pleasure they take in themselves are ten a penny in all political parties. They haunt the peripheries like ghosts of the Christmases they don't believe in past. Backing losing causes, throwing tea parties for murderers, and looking saintly. Mr. Corbyn's misfortune was to be lifted from those peripheries and dumped, 
haplessly in the center. Ladies and gentlemen, not just for our sake, but for his. For theirs. Will someone please have pity and dump him back? Thank you. Thank you, uh, Howard, for that uh, measured and calm introductory speech. Our first speaker against the motion is Chris Williamson, Labour MP for Derby North, a key ally of Jeremy Corbyn on the backbenches, described by the New Statesman, no less during the 2017 general election, as the most pro-Jeremy Corbyn candidate in England's most marginal constituency. This is Chris Williamson. Thank you uh, very much indeed, Chair. And um, I, uh, unlike the previous speaker, I'm going to try and stick to the motion. And I aim to demonstrate that Jeremy Corbyn is indeed fit to be Prime Minister. But let me start by thanking Intelligence Squared for arranging this event. And I must say that when I joined the Labour Party as a 19-year-old apprentice bricklayer back in 1976, I never imagined speaking at such a highbrow event. Anyway, I'm sorry to say that I think Howard's indulging in a complete mischaracterisation of Jeremy. In my opinion, Jeremy Corbyn will prove to be the best Prime Minister this country has ever had. Just look what he's achieved. Just look what he's achieved already. The Labour Party's membership has more than tripled since he was elected leader. In fact, Labour's membership's considerably higher than every other political party put together. But it's not just Labour's soaring membership that's impressive. He's restored hope to millions of people who'd given up on politics. And he's inspired young people in a way that we've never seen before. So what's his secret? Well, the truth is, it's pretty straightforward. Labour is now offering a real choice. Free market economics has failed millions of British people. And working class communities have been hardest hit. Thatcher's promise of a shareholding, property-owning democracy was a fantasy. But the confidence trick worked and delivered substantial electoral success. In fact, Thatcherism was so successful that it gave birth to Tony Blair and New Labour. Margaret Thatcher even said that Tony Blair and New Labour were her greatest achievements. Because, she said, we forced our opponents to change their minds. But that left millions of Britons politically homeless. Turnout at elections fell, while public cynicism about politics grew. Despite the financial crash ten years ago, much of the political class and the mainstream media are still enthralled to neoliberalism. Neither are speaking to the needs of the country. For the last four decades, we've seen rising inequality. But the preceding 34 years, when inequality narrowed to such an extent that as a 19-year-old apprentice bricklayer in 1976, I was able to buy my own house. It was a brand-new three-bedroom, semi-detached house backing onto a nice waterfront in a desirable village eight miles south of Derby. And it was only three times my annual wage. So another world is possible, but it requires political will. That's why Corbyn's message that he'll make a future Labour government work for the many, not the few, is resonating. Just look at the polls. There's never been an easier time to campaign for the Labour Party. Most people support the individual policies that Jeremy's promoting. And by way of evidence, Giles Brandreth went to Guildford, the capital of the home counties, looking for secret socialists. And he found plenty. He stopped people on the street and asked them if they supported things like higher taxes for people earning over £150,000. Oh, yes, 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 I support that. Regulating the private rented sector. Yes, that's a very good idea. Oh, I totally support that. Ending privatisation in the National Health Service. Well, I'm totally with you on that, they said. Scrapping tuition fees. Absolutely, about time. And clamping down on tax avoidance. Yes, we must definitely do that there was almost universal support for those policies. And then Giles Brandreth turned his clipboard around and said, 
These are the policies of Jeremy Corbyn. There is mainstream popular support, therefore, for Jeremy's policy. The truth is that deregulation, privatisation and the commodification of public services was disastrous. The one-dimensional obsession with financial services was wrong-headed too. And the absence of an industrial strategy has driven millions into low-paid, precarious employment. Working-class kids can't hope to replicate what I did as a 19-year-old apprentice. Our industrial heartlands have been abandoned and people are searching for answers. The post-crash response has been hopeless and dangerous. QE, for example, actually exacerbated inequality. Even the right-wing Spectator magazine described it as the biggest transfer of wealth to the rich of any government policy in recent documented history. But the last eight years of austerity has generated real resentment. Far-right populism is on the rise, fueled by poverty and insecurity. Meanwhile, the mainstream media perpetuate the politics of fear by scapegoating migrants, and that's then used to whip up racism. Political centrism offers nothing in these circumstances. It's just another name for free market status quo, and that ship has sailed. Just look at Italy, Greece, and even France, where Macron's poll ratings have plummeted. And this is a guy who models himself on Tony Blair. So there's no political salvation in that direction. But Corbyn's programme for common sense socialism offers a populist antidote to the politics of fear. In fact, Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party is the only traditional left of centre party in Europe that's prevented the drift of its core vote. Thanks to Jeremy Corbyn, Labour's answered the demands of those left behind voters, not by scapegoating migrants, not by whipping up racism, and not by moral panics over crime or foreign enemies. Corbyn's Labour offers something better. Class politics is back on the agenda. But let there be no doubt who we're talking about when we say, for the many, not the few, because that may be where some of Howard's anxieties lie. Labour's taking aim at an elite defined by their class perspective and nothing else. Those who speculate on our economy, who avoid paying tax, who profit from privatised utilities like gas, water, electricity and the trains. And as for the debate about the IHRA examples of anti-Semitism, let me be clear. One of the reasons this has been a sticking point for Labour is because we genuinely care about the politics of anti-racism. And Jeremy Corbyn, yes, has been fighting racism all his life. The debate in Labour has been exclusively about preserving the right to speak up for Palestinians and to legitimately criticise the Israeli government. I want to say this. There are three voices in this debate, but we rarely hear from all three. First, there are the diverse voices in the Jewish community, many of whom have a strong and very understandable deep connection to Israel. Second, there's the Labour Party, which must write policy in the interests of the nation and according to the party's values. And third, there are the Palestinian people, who, let's be clear, were violently displaced when Israel was established. We cannot and we must not try to hide this fact just because we find it distasteful or uncomfortable. But Labour's policy towards Israel-Palestine conflict is for a two-state solution. It's not an attempt to reverse history, just like peace in Northern Ireland. In fact, peace where, in whatever form can only be achieved by dialogue. So let me return to the motion at hand. It might seem odd, but the 68-year-old Jeremy Corbyn has modernised Labour, making it fit to overcome the challenges facing the country. Our manifesto last year saw Labour's biggest increase in vote share since 1945. Over 80% of the British public support regulation of tax-avoiding digital, digital text giants like Amazon, Google and Facebook. 80% of the British public support raising the minimum wage. Establishing a publicly owned national investment bank and borrowing to invest polls at over 55%. These policies represent the new centre ground of British politics. They represent a direction that no other Labour leader was prepared to go before Corbyn, never mind another political party. We live in a country where the wealthiest 10% own 900 times more than the poorest 10%, and yet we're the sixth richest country on the planet. How can we let this go on? But let's talk about the man himself. There's so much said about him, it's hard to keep up. Apparently, he's a terrorist sympathiser, but he's also a pacifist. He's a weak leader, but he's also overbearing. He's a leader of a cult, but he's not charismatic. 
What I see in Jeremy, every time he stands at that dispatch box, even under the glare from both sides of the chamber, is a man with a strength of moral convictions. And yet, these convictions are far from dogmatic. The special thing about Jeremy is that he's a politician that listens. Everywhere you go with him is a complete nightmare. He speaks to everyone, and I mean he really speaks and he really listens. Is that not the character of a man who's fit to govern? Fit to govern? Because... What do we mean by governing? John McDonnell's fond of saying, when Labour goes into government, we all go into government. And Jeremy is above all a Democrat. He wants ordinary people to have a say in how their world is shaped. Isn't that refreshing? Is this not the attitude we need to heal a nation divided by four decades of neoliberalism and made worse by a government that's inflicted eight years of counterproductive austerity? People on the left often say that at times of crisis we must choose socialism or barbarism. Well, today we have a similar choice. Investment or austerity, dialogue or conflict, democracy or dogma. The choice today is between Corbyn's Labour or a Tory Twilight Zone. Powerful and passionate from Chris and uh, brilliantly on time. You came in just as that clock said uh, 10 minutes precisely. Uh, Anna Subri is going to speak next for the motion coming up now to the podium. Conservative MP for Broxtow in Nottinghamshire and former business minister until 2016. A prominent critic of Jeremy Corbyn. Anna thinks that Jeremy is a hard-left Marxist. She's a key member of the People's Vote campaign for a referendum on the Brexit deal. Anna, you have your 10 minutes beginning now. Well, thank you very much, and thank you, everybody, for coming along. What I'd like you, first of all, to do is to remember when you were back at school. Uh, whichever school you may have gone to, there's, I think it's almost impossible to imagine that you didn't have a head teacher. And throughout your lives, you will have had in your experiences times when you will have encountered, or it may have been you yourself, who has been a leader. So we have all had experiences of what we would expect to see in a leader, a good leader or a bad leader, or perhaps not so great leader. So what are the qualities that make a great leader? Because, of course, you need to have those qualities to be the most important leader in our country, which is to be our prime minister. I suggest, as you consider that, some of the following qualities. Integrity, competence, uh, an ability to inspire, a dis- an ability to be able to take decisions an ability to have accountability in your leadership, to have courage, and most of all, perhaps, in the political field as a prime minister, to be successful. I listened with care uh, to Chris's speech when he spoke in such glowing terms about Jeremy Corbyn, spectacularly forgetting, of course, that last June we had a general election. Uh, And whilst it's right that he won a few more seats, he spectacularly failed because he lost as leader of the Labour Party at a time when arguably it would have been the most easiest win of any general election because of the profound failings of my party when it went into that campaign, which, as you might imagine, I don't intend to dwell upon. But... And I really wish you hadn't applauded. Now, if you haven't been convinced by the magnificent speech of Howard over there, may I give you some other suggestions and ideas as to why Jeremy Corbyn is profoundly unfit to not only be our Prime Minister, but to be the leader of one of the most important political parties in the world. Even though it's a party I've obviously never been a member of, I don't subscribe to and seek to fight, I nevertheless recognise what an important political party it is and I know what it has meant for so many people in our history and in our country. One of the most 
peculiarly awful moments in the time that I've been in Parliament. I was elected in 2010. I'm an old criminal barrister and I came into politics or returned quite later on in my life. Was standing in Parliament Square, just down the road there, surrounded by members of the Jewish community who were staging a protest against anti-Semitism in their own party, the Labour Party. And I sat in Parliament listening to speeches from members of Parliament who were Jewish, who talked about anti-Semitism in their lives on a scale that they had never experienced before. But the most remarkable and most disturbing and distressing speeches were those from Labour Jewish MPs who talked about this rise in anti-Semitism from within their own party. And that is a party that Jeremy Corbyn has now led for, what is it, almost three, it is, three years almost. He should be ashamed of what state he has taken that great political party into. And it's, it's not just the Jewish MPs in the Labour Party who make complaint, it's the women too. Speak to women Labour MPs about the abuse that they have received during his tenure by members of their party and in particular the abuse they have suffered by supporters and from supporters of Jeremy Corbyn. And Howard rightly mentioned Brexit. I don't think Chris mentioned it at all. Astonishing, isn't it? The most important matter, issue, decision that our country has taken since the Second World War. And as Howard rightly identified, again, Corbyn spectacularly failed to lead his party, his people, his voters, into making the right decision for our country by his, not just his lacklustre performance, but by that, by that 7.5 that he gave. And of course he said that, because he doesn't believe that we should have stayed or should remain within the European Union. We've heard from Chris about the return of the class struggle. He is the perfect embodiment of what has happened to the Labour Party. The return of the old hard left. It's nothing new, I remember it from my days as a student. These are the people who are now back in charge. These are the people who are running the Labour Party. And on Brexit, this issue that dominates our politics, what do we see from the Labour Party? Where is the leadership? Where is the policies? None of these things exist. Dragging and screaming they were to accept a customs union. They still haven't embraced the merits of the single market because perversely and bizarrely, from this great party or this great leader that Chris eulogises, who apparently believes in immigration, they still won't come out and make the positive case for immigration that must and should be made. I say to their eternal shame, they have shown no leadership. And what does that mean? What has that resulted in? And this is how I see it. Well, you could say the official opposition is a bunch of Tory backbenchers like me and some very brave moderates on the Labour Party side as well, who do our best to put some sanity and reason into this terrible crisis that our country will face if we don't get a good deal, or even better, if we were to remain within the European Union. But God help us if we have that hard Brexit. What it means, in my opinion, is there are millions and millions of people in our country who believe that nobody speaks for them. They are good, sensible, moderate, tolerant people who have long occupied the centre ground of British political life. They have seen the Labour Party being taken over by the Marxists, the Trotskyists, the rabble that have existed on the extremes of politics for a long time. And Chris says these are the people, these hundreds of thousands, that apparently Jeremy has brought back to the Labour Party. Well, I think Ed Miliband would say it was his £3 membership that had a bit to do with it. That's what Jeremy did. He took advantage of that. Now, I would agree 
only in this way. I think that Corbyn has inspired a section of our young people who understandably, in my view, were disenchanted, who are idealistic, who wanted to hear stuff perhaps they hadn't heard from main uh, political classes for far too long. And I, I think he caught that mood. I think he rode that wave and he did it very well. But of course, as they now see what it really means, Corbyn, Corbyn's politics, as they now see and understand the anti-Semitism that has always run through the extreme left, I believe they are quite rightly turning away. So he's apparently got even more members into the Labour Party. This is his, it seems, only victory and success. Of course, Chris forgets and doesn't tell you about the 103 resignations from the Labour front bench during Jeremy Corbyn's tenure. And you know that within the Labour Party as it exists in Parliament, he has very little support amongst members of his own party who sit in Parliament. And I would, uh, I would argue that speaks volumes because I don't want to play the man. I do want to talk about his policies, but I think the clock's against me. But what I would say is this. On all the big occasions, like yesterday when the Prime Minister stood up and talked about what had happened in Salisbury, on all the great occasions, Corbyn just can't do it. He just hasn't got the ability to say the sort of thing that you would expect from a credible leader of a major political party, especially the leader of the opposition. Ian Blackford, Vince Cable spoke better than he did yesterday. And even when he has a superb open goal, and some would say that my Prime Minister often stands in Parliament in front of that very wide open goal, spectacularly on every occasion he misses it. And why is that? Because he is somebody who has always been on the absolute fringes, carping from the sidelines. Somebody who... Probably the biggest decision of his life was what was going to be the vegetarian option at the Palestinian Solidarity Meeting. Uh, I, make, I make light of it, but ladies and gentlemen, in my respectful submissions to you, there really is no debate. Whichever way you cut it, this man is not fit to be our Prime Minister, never mind the leader of the Labour Party. So uh, thank you very much indeed, uh, Anna, for uh, that. I think we, we got uh, the general drift there of what you thought about Jeremy Corbyn, which after all is the point of the debate. Now we're going to have against the motion and for Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Ash Sarkar. Ash is senior editor at Navara Media, which, as I'm sure you know, is a left-leaning online news outlet where her work focuses on race, gender, class, and power. Ash, as you will shortly discover, is a prominent supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. Ash. I'll uh, keep it brief. What the fuck are we all doing here? I don't mean this in any philosophical sense, real talk, what the hell are we all doing here? Love Island has finished, but that's still no excuse, really, to spend your evening in this way. I mean, it's my job to chat crap for a living, but if I'm being honest with you, I really hate these things. Us lot up on the stage come here, we prowl around for our allotted 10 minutes, giving it the full Gordon Brown if we are able, telling you that Jeremy Corbyn is either the cause of or the solution to all your life's problems. And we gnaw over the greatest hits, Brexit, populism, foreign policy, anti-Semitism, civility, and then we put it in your hands, the audience, the demos, who paid between 15 and 30 quid for the privilege of voting, and we practice our faces for losing gracefully. We hope that we would be magnanimous in the event of victory. And then every single person in this room, every one of us, 
goes home with a comforting hum of self-satisfaction. For what we have done in this room is none other than the lofty business of politics itself. Which is utter fraff, right? All we're doing in here, or even just around the corner in the Palace of Westminster, your place of work, mate, or in Broadcasting House, is trying to keep alive a collective delusion that politics resides in these approximations of the Oxford Union Debating Society. And that's why Jeremy Corbyn scares the bejesus out of so many people. Not because he is a Czech spy who moonlights as a member of Hezbollah, all while working undercover for the provisional IRA, of course, while at the same time simultaneously trying to do a hard Brexit and subvert the referendum outcome. It's because Corbyn, as leader of the Labour Party, is an expression of the social forces poised to change Britain on a scale which it hasn't seen since 1945. Because at its heart, the project of Corbynism is the building of power outside the hallowed halls of Westminster. It's about power in our neighbourhoods, in our unions and our workplaces, our schools and our community centres, our social networks both on and offline. I want to speak in this register, the register of movements. I want to speak in Nye Bevan's words, the language of priorities. So, hands up, full disclosure, I am not a Labour Party member. Like, you, you know what's that saying about not wanting to be a member of any club that would have you in it? I go with that. My heart is with movement politics, they always have been. It's been that way in my family for generations. So my grandmother came here at the age of 17. She was greeted by teddy boys spitting bile at her. My mother, uh, similarly, uh, would often put her own five-foot-one body in between London's black and brown youth and the racist police officers and or National Front members. Sometimes it was hard to tell the difference between them. And neither of them had very much positive to say about the Labour Party. And this was in the age of what Anna calls the old left back in the 70s, which is apparently is the same one that we've got now. They weren't any big fan of this old left. Many of the unions were hostile to black and Asians participating in organising with them. Often, the same Labour councillors who would try and organise events against the NF would be letting out their council properties for the NF to use at the same time, a gross act of hypocrisy uh, in my mum and my grandmother's eyes. So they committed themselves wholesale to movement politics outside of the Labour Party. Though, funnily enough, both my mum and my grandmother have fond memories of a certain scruffy Haringey councillor, later MP for Islington North, joining them on the anti-apartheid picket line, and in my mum's case, supporting her campaign for specialist domestic violence services for women of colour. And it is in their tradition, the tradition of my mum and my grandma, that I am first and foremost an anti-racist activist. And it is for this reason that I say unequivocally that we must fight anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, anti-black racism, xenophobia in the Labour Party and the left at large, tooth and nail. And we cannot in any way deny the fact that these issues exist on the left. And they exist on the left because the left exists in society. It takes some specific forms on the left, but it's essentially the same things that we see elsewhere. And any Corbo loyalist who's telling you that we don't have to do, do anti-racism in the Labour Party is missing the whole point of Corbyn's politics in their entirety. He has always been a dedicated anti-racist activist. And the women of my family knew something. And I think Corbyn, uh, in his days as an activist, knew something too. That electoral politics alone cannot deliver substantial social change, like that anti-racist change which is so needed in our society. Indeed, as the slogan goes, there is no justice, there is just us. 
Skipping forward a few decades, we knew this in 2010. I was a student activist who, along with thousands of others up and down the country, responded to the betrayal of the Liberal Democrats and even woke Tories like Anna Soubry, who trebled the tuition fees by uh, occupying our universities. Just down the road on Westminster Bridge, we were kettled, we were charged out with horses in the freezing cold. And there were only two MPs who came to see us during this time when we were sleeping on a cold university floor because the um, uh, university administration had cut off the heating, eating cold hummus, which was quite crap. Um, Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell. And they've never forgotten the debt that they owe to these social movements. They know that when they enter number 10, they're not going to be all that interested in parliamentary horse trading, meeting up with their opposite numbers, maybe trying to engineer some kind of a parliamentary split to, I don't know, scrap over 6% of the votes like many centrist MPs. Instead, they will be meeting with people like disabled people against the cuts. They will be meeting with the families of people who've lost loved ones to police violence. They will be meeting with people directly affected by austerity and using their voices to guide the direction of policy in this country. That's social movement politics. The funny thing about both uh, Howard and Anna's speeches is that they acknowledged that the summer should have really been an open goal for Labour. Polls haven't shifted very much. The awful, depressing thing about this anti-Semitism crisis is that there's not much cut through to the rest of the British public. Everyone is deeply alienated and turned off from seeing the serious business of racism reduced to a cheap opportunity for political point scoring. I'm deeply depressed by it. I'm deeply depressed that for your powerful words against anti-Semitism, they were powerful, Anna, that you've had nothing to say about the crisis of, of Islamophobia within your own party. From figures such as Baroness Varsity, who has called for an inquiry and has been stonewalled at every turn. I also don't remember um, a great deal of criticism of your colleagues like Michael Fabricant sharing Islamophobic memes. And these memes are very similar to the form in which anti-Semitism takes. I don't agree with Howard that anti-Semitism is divorced from all other kinds of racism. I agree with Edward Said, who says that anti-Semitism and Islamophobia are both nourished at the same source, nurtured by the same stream. I, as a Muslim, cannot be safe while my Jewish brothers and sisters are unsafe, and vice versa. So, I've got about a minute left. I'll probably end a bit sooner than that, because uh, I think the natives are getting a bit restless. I don't actually care about Jeremy Corbyn's personality. I mean, I think he's a nice enough guy. He reminds me of the Werther's original granddad. I care about us. I care about if we are ready for government. Because the Tories, they'd rather talk about personality than policy. Because that's the terrain on which they lose. And it's up to us to keep the conversation on the issues that really affect us every day. It's not a question of whether we trust Jeremy Corbyn to be a fit prime minister when he walks into number 10. It's about whether we trust ourselves to walk in behind him. So to paraphrase someone whose name I've forgotten, after tonight, catch up on the programs that you missed, and then go back into your neighborhoods and prepare for government. So, uh, uh, Ash, passionate, also unconventional, uh, quiet, I thought, uh, understated uh, beginning. Um, I mean, why the fuck are, are we here, after all? Um, uh, great. Let's uh, begin with just getting some movement amongst the panel. But before then, I do have the results very hot off the press from... Uh, people's democracy, and it is on the motion, is in fact, in truth, Jeremy Corbyn unfit to be Prime Minister? Well, apparently 66% of you think he is unfit, 13% uh, think he's just fine, 
and 21% of you undecided. So let's have the lights up, and we're going to just see... Uh, we're going to have the first question. There is a lady uh, in the front row. I want to see a second question. I want to go over on this side at the back. Yes, somebody over there is going to take the second question, please. Two things. Why is my synagogue in the centre of London at Jewish New Year having to put up the sort of entrances that normally we see in airports? We've never had that before. And the increase in attacks on Jewish people has risen with Jeremy Corbyn. And if Jeremy Corbyn is so wonderful, why are you not streaks ahead in the point? And why, when he adopts the official definition of of anti-Semitism, does he have to put a caveat on it? Yes, come in too. Uh, Chris, you said that Jeremy is a very good listener, but does he hear anything? Because... I would love to see what evidence you can give of him changing his mind. Can you list the issues where he's changed his mind, be it Venezuela or whatever? Okay, thank you. And question number three over there, can he uh, listen? Yep. I I just want to say that I've been watching Jeremy Corbyn for many years. I've been to many of his meetings for 10 years. We've recorded him, and we know that he's an anti-Semite. We've heard him. We know that he supports Hezbollah. We know that he supports the IRA. And my question Uh, is, do the people of this country really want a a prime minister who has that background and who lies about it, as Howard Jacobson said? He has told lie after lie after lie. Hezbollah are are not his friends, he says. This man tells porkies and he wants to run our country and he wants to run it as a okay. Marxist country. Is okay. that what we need? Okay, so, so thank you very much. And I'm going to ask you that lady there, what is that lady, let's go back, what is the worst single thing that you've heard him say? Can we have the question? Microphone back, please. Mike, back to that lady there. I want to say very quickly the worst thing in 10 years that you've heard him say. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn refers to Israel as a racist entity. Jer- that, to me, is the worst thing. That Because what he's talking about, he's not talking about Israel. He's actually talking about Jews. Okay. Israel is a synonym okay, for the that. Jewish people. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, right. Um, Howard. Do you want me to say the worst thing I've ever heard him say? Yeah, go You on. haven't got the time to hear the worst things he's ever said. But I thought when he said that Zionists have got, that's to say, Jews, Jews, Zionists, they change around as it suits them, have got no sense of irony... Um, and don't study history, tell that to Simon Sharma. And when he said that his actual words were, uh, having lived in this country for a very long time, probably all their lives, they don't understand. Having lived in this country for a very long time, how to make a section of this country feel like aliens? The clothness of that ear, that he does not hear, that you can say to people who have lived in this country for generations, oh, you've lived here, but you haven't got the part of it. I have never felt... All the Jews I know all said, well, that really is the end of it. Whatever doubts we had before, that's the end of it. If he can talk about Jews like that, then there's no hope for him. And as for this... But I could also add the speech he gave on on, uh, Iranian TV, because this is a man who made many appearances on Iranian TV and Russian TV. Those are all forgotten. The speech he made on Iranian TV to the Iranians who swear the destruction of Israel, he said, I think the BBC is a bit biased because they seem to think there is an argument to be made for, for the survival of Israel. There is a, the, the BBC is biased because he thinks there is a, a, an argument to be made for the survival of Israel, meaning I don't think there's an argument to be made for the survival of Israel. That's where he stands on Israel. Okay, and got that. Thank you very much. I'm going to want to identify the people for the next batch and bring in Ash for the responses to that. Does he listen? Uh, is he, in fact, an anti-Semat again? I think we've answered that, but does it matter? Would he be capable in Downing Street of ruling in the interests of Jewish people or would he discriminate against them? I mean, I'd like to try and um, take some of these questions in one big bunch because I think the one which went unremarked on was um, by the lady with the fabulous earrings about this rise in anti-Semitism and attacks on synagogues. Um, but just quickly, in terms of Howard's um, talking about this joke, is that I think it was a clunky joke. It was a joke which was playing on more British than the British. But I find it funny that you found that indefensible, whereas you defended the healing power of Bernard Manning. You're on record saying this. You were 
were, you know, part of a documentary in which you were in the front row, not laughing true. along, not as true. he was. Absolutely not true. I didn't defend Bernard Manning. I described. I described Bernard Manning. That's what I did. I didn't defend him at all. You didn't the, the, watch the, the carefully enough. The, the same piece in the Telegraph um, said that in this Channel Four oh, documentary, which is in 1997, so I didn't watch it. Uh, I was five, and it was really in Sesame Street around that time. Um, was that you were in the front row, laughing along, while he made awful jokes about Irish people, Jewish people, and also used that N-word? So this seems like a striking bit of hypocrisy. But one of the things that I would like to say, so I want to come back to your point about this escalation in anti-Semitism, because I think that this is something which we lose when we zero in on the Labour Party's internal processes, is that anti-Semitism particularly attacks on those who are seen as being culturally distinctive in some way, whether that's institutions or individuals, has gone hand in hand with Islamophobia. And at the same time, you've had an amplification of anti-Semitic harassment and hate online. I think that this needs to be dealt with by looking at how our culture reproduces hatred of those who are deemed to be other, who are deemed to be deviant, who are deemed to not belong here. Thank you, Ash, for your response. I'm going to take three more questions, and I would really like not to have questions on anti-Semitism because this is a bigger debate tonight than just... I'm saying very important, but there are... Question number one, go. Question number one. Thank you. Um, Entertaining as it's been, can we maybe talk more in detail about the economic policies that Jeremy Ah. Corbyn has put... Uh, So, uh, is he fit economically to run the country? Uh, Secondly, uh, here. Well, as a partially Jewish person, I am absolutely appalled that this meeting tonight has been hijacked by the debate about anti-Semitism. I mean, frankly, we face, as has been said, this incredibly serious question about whether we leave Europe or not. It seems to me that has to be the main burden of what we should be talking about and which party, let alone whether Jeremy Corbyn is fit. And the fact is we are being so let down. And why is it, in fact, we know that the 48-52 result was absolutely outrageous for us to be taken forward on the basis of something called democracy in something so important. So why is this okay. not being discussed in relation to who should lead the okay. Labour Party? Um, and to be fair to Anna, she said it was the most important uh, topic uh, in the whole of national politics at the moment. Chris told me that his section on Europe, he didn't have time to come on, take Europe, take the economy, is Jeremy Corbyn fit to become Prime Minister later this year or any time in the next three or four years? Well, obviously, I believe he is, clearly. And in terms of economic policies, look, we've had four decades of neoliberalism. It's been a total failure. It's completely failed whole swathes of our country. We've seen manufacturing jobs offshore to low-wage economies. We see people, millions of people in precarious employment. We see our public services being hived off to the private sector. We see our utilities going the same way. They're used as a cash cow. And we see industrial-scale tax evasion and avoidance. And we absolutely have to clamp down on that. And we are saying that we'll be an end to neoliberalism. We will have an economy that does indeed work for the many, not the few. We will make sure that the tax evaders pay their way, that the faceless corporations actually pay their way and contribute to the public services and the education and infrastructure that they rely upon. So, yes, we are a party for the many, not the few. And as for it only... Oh, sorry. I was going to say Europe. Just just say a word on Europe, Chris. Okay, well, Europe... Listen, on Europe, I campaigned night and day. I was up in the early hours of the morning on the two days prior to the vote to leaflet commuters. So I played my part and I spoke at numerous public meetings. We lost the vote. We cannot go back and have another vote. And I tell you what, if we were to go back, and I think it's incredibly irresponsible of anybody, from Anna to Chukaramuna, to constantly be calling into question the decision that was taken by the British people, as flawed as it might have been. Because a decision has now been taken, whether it be 52-48. That's how democracy works. And if we continue down this track, and if they were to be successful 
in getting another referendum, I fear we would lose it, but worse, it would, I think, precipitate an even worse postmodern 1930s crisis, a rise in the far right. We're seeing the influence of the far right in the Conservative Party already, and we would be precipitating a nightmare scenario. We need a people's Brexit. Let's focus on That's that and stop it? this piffle about calling for a people's vote in a second referendum. It's okay, nonsense. So, so no piffle, no piffle, no nonsense. If Jeremy Corbyn had come out really strongly, given how effective he is, we've been hearing as a campaigner, if he'd come out really strongly for Remain, would the vote have been different? Jeremy came yes. out strongly for Remain. Let me tell you, isn't it odd how Nicola Sturgeon is hailed as a great conquering heroine who secured exactly the same percentage of SNP voters voting for Remain as Jeremy Corbyn did? It's absurd. It's another proxy war by if the people who are obsessed okay, with neoliberalism and this status quo, which has failed millions of British okay, people. You were given seven, and, or if I said to you, if you said, "Will you mark my speech tonight?" and I went, mm, seven. I'd be quite seven happy, Howard, if he gave you seven. You wouldn't. You I would. would. You'd want ten. Uh, well, I would, but I'd be happy if you, gave ten. Ten. if you gave me seven, Howard. And between ourselves, <laughs> I, think, I think you deserve ten. Thank you. For someone to have so few arguments and to be delivered them with such passion, <laughs> I think it's fantastic. <laughs> OK, Anna, it's Piffle. So what is Labour's policy... What's Chris's policy on Brexit? Because that's the most... The, the woman is right. That is the most important question because it reflects on Corbyn's leadership. Remember, Corbyn said we should trigger Article 50 the day after the EU referendum. Do you think that's a responsible leader to trigger Article 50 the day after the EU referendum? They have had no policy uh, until they've been dragged screaming and kicking to a customs union. And the irony of it is, is Chris Williamson talks about the manufacturing sector. Unless we have that frictionless trade and the single market, you will see hundreds of thousands of jobs will go in the manufacturing sector. So why isn't Labour standing up, as now increasingly trade unions are doing, calling for a customs union, calling for the single market, calling for an economic outcome. And finally, on the people's vote, that is about the deal. And I think the people of this country do have a right. Now we know more about what leave actually means. They do have a right to a say and a vote on a deal. And interestingly, the GMB came out in agreement with that Yet another trade union, who Labour's meant to be wedded to, seeing why it's so important that the deal goes back to the people so they decide, not 650 MPs. OK, just out of, out of interest, hands up those people who would like a second referendum. People's vote. And hands down, hands up who still is in favour of Remain. Okay, uh, good. So this is a very Brexit audience. Uh, I'm sorry, everyone. It has been such um, uh, such a dull, uh, quiet debate uh, here. I've got now ringing in both my ears severe tinnitus uh, from uh, these people. I've been kicked under uh, the uh, table too. And uh, but I do have the result for you, um, and the result I think shows that we know why the F we are here tonight. Um, the uh, four uh, the motion that who these people think that he's unfit, and there are some uh, 800 people here tonight. It was 66, and it has gone down. If that's a false fact, uh, it's gone down to 85 percent. Uh, 85 percent, um, and against has also gone up. Uh, up uh, from a 13% to 14%. Therefore, we can say that everyone's a winner. No, we can't. Uh, we can, Sorry, e we can't. Everyone's a winner, uh, but 
uh, Howard, uh, what really I think is shameful is that there was apparently one person here tonight on the data I've got who didn't know, uh, but I've also been told here that they thought they'd come to a wrong debate. They thought they'd come to a vegetarian society meeting tonight. So uh, if you want to identify yourself, I, Hannah Kay here is in the front row and will refund your money so that you might come back again. Thank you for being a great audience. Thank you for being a spectacular panel. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.